The Trek Files, Season 7, Episode 6, Star Trek vs. the Monkeys, October 17, 1967. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, hello, Star Trek fans. Welcome back to another edition of The Trek Files. I'm so glad to see all of you Star Trek history nuts. Hey, all of you uh, canonistas, I say that lovingly. All you tech heads, hey. Yes, basically all you Trekophiles spelled with an F. We've got another one of those great, great uh, episodes today with a new guest to the show. And we're going to explore an area that is so much fun and yet gets so little attention. So, hey, you know what to do. Check out our page at Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. You can download us every place, but that's where on Facebook you can find our documents of the week. You want to see these? We have a file this week that's going to bring a smile to your face. Check that out. I'll be right back with this week's guest. Meanwhile, take a listen to just a little sample of that doc. NBC informs us that Star Trek has now passed the monkeys and is the number one show in all the nation and fan mail received. Not only this, but every report is that Star Trek's fan response is by far the most devoted and enthusiastic by all measurements. Hey, hey, everybody, we are talking about the monkeys. We're talking about the late 60s. Uh, at NBC and in American television, and uh, and and what what does a corp a corporation like Paramount, like Desi Lu at the time, do with that kind of information? Uh, Gene's writing a memo here, but what does that really mean, <laughs> in house and for the audience? And I can think of no one better to talk about. It's a business subject, but it's a lot of fun. Then John Wentworth, who, my gosh, was a 36-year veteran of Paramount, well, Paramount before and after the Viacom divorce, in, in promotion. He was the executive vice president, wound up that way, for both Paramount and then over on CBS. Uh, John, I am so glad you could join us for the Trek Files today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Larry. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I hope this is going to be a fun introduction to a little bit of down memory lane. But just to just to do some math here, what was the year you first came to Paramount as a as a junior executive there in promotion? Thank you. So I started in Param at Paramount in 1983, and I was 23 years old and started in the syndication division. Um, we'll talk more a little bit later, I think, about what syndication is and mm -hmm. all that. But at the time, our syndicated shows were Entertainment Tonight and Solid Gold. Um, and I was doing publicity and marketing for those shows. And I think my title at the time was Manager of Advertising, Publicity and right. Promotion. And by the time, uh, let's see, Star Trek The Next Generation rolled around, I, by four, that time, four years later, was, yeah, exactly, right. I was uh, Senior Vice President of uh communications and marketing for paramount television group basically the same role uh i've always said to people my job is to get people to watch tv 
So for about 36 years at Paramount and CBS, it was to call attraction to the shows that we made and get people to watch our TV shows and become right. aware of them. And we had various means for doing that. Um, but amongst many, many shows that I worked on over the years, of course, the crown jewel was Star Trek. And uh, it was the gift that uh, was started before I got there. I wasn't around in 67 or right. 66. I was, but not working. I was seven years old uh, and enjoying <laughs> monkeys on TV. But um, uh, anyway, I later went on to, yes, having this, this, uh, this awesome role in uh, working with some of the finest people, actors, producers, directors, costumers, everybody uh, in, in the Trek world. And by the time I left, the whole studio in uh, 2017. I was mostly involved with Trek at the level of consumer products and the 50th anniversary and various uh, facets like that. Yeah, special events. Well, yeah. you said you were a fan of the monkeys when you were little. Did you watch, were you a fan of Star Trek? Did you come into that? And, and you know, wh where was your fandom track with Star well, Trek? Don't anybody be angry, but my fandom of Trek started <laughs> in, in 1987. Uh, no, I was a fan of the monkeys and I think the Wild Wild West back in the late 60s. Mm -hmm. For some reason, uh, Trek was not on my radar, but I do remember and this is odd, I was brought up in the Virgin Islands of all random places, born in Maine, but brought up in the Virgin Islands. And we didn't have television uh, except for two television stations and they came on the air at four o'clock. Um, but I remember standing at the bus stop and uh, you know, a peer or another, whatever she might've been, uh, you know, 10 or 11 year old kid said something about Star Trek and going to a Star Trek invention. And that is the first time I ever remember hearing anything about Star Trek. Um, but isn't in that the Virgin Islands? In the Virgin Islands, yes. And I don't believe that the convention she was going to was in the Virgin Islands. I right. think she was leaving to go to it somewhere. But this would have been, um, it's fascinating to me because the memory of Trek wasn't about the show or the content or an episode, but it had to do with the other, the other parallel track life of Trek as we know it, which is the conventions and fandom. And mm -hmm. that was my first exposure to it, was hearing a friend talk about a Star Trek convention. And we're, of course, we're talking about the U.S. Virgin Islands, which was a U.S. colony. Exactly. So, there, yes. Right, in right, right. So you were yeah. Yeah, in American culture. Correct. That's, that's, that's wild. So you're at Star Trek, you're at, you're at Paramount for four years before the next generation comes along. And there's really a revolution in, um, in syndication. But uh, I, I want to I talk a little more about that as we talk a little bit. But so we've got this letter. Let me let me switch it back around. So here's Gene. And just for context for the kids of today, the monkeys was like the definition of TV hot. Right. It was. They came out of nowhere. And if you don't know the story, they were like a manufactured band. And so at one hand, they were a hot TV show. But in the music world, they were kind of sneered at. And, and all the all the guys, uh, Mike Nesbitt and Mickey Dolenz and Peter Tork and Davy Jones and oh my gosh I can still rattle that off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> they were all they were all musicians to some degree and resentful that they were looked at as a as a made up band. But as a TV show as a as an entertainment entity they went through the roof and last but they kind of burned out right two three years but they had a huge fan club and a huge mail campaign and we're talking mail paper and stamp mail and. For Gene to write this letter, this was, I mean, now you're a Monkees fan, and now you know Star Trek. So what did you think as you read this letter? I mean, how powerful was this, and do you think they got anyone to pay attention? I mean, obviously not. Star Trek got canceled after three years in the right. system. But what came up for you as you saw this letter as a, as a fan and both an industry professional? 
Well, it, it was pretty awesome because Star Trek has been uh, groundbreaking at every turn, whether it's the content and subject matter or the ratings or the fandom. Uh, it's just constantly breaking barriers and, and pushing envelopes and doing things unlike any other you know, entertainment uh, entity. But when you think of the monkeys uh, at the time, it had so much exposure because they were a band that had hit music on radios, on radio stations. And so I look at so many things through the lens of promotion and marketing and exposure. And when I think of the show, you know, the monkeys, it, it not only existed on air and, and was made aware to its fans through promos, as most TV shows would, but it had this amazing additional benefit of having constant exposure on pop radio. And when you think that that uh, created a, a huge television show, but was eclipsed then even by Star Trek, it just speaks to the potency of Star Trek. It's just unbelievable. But let's, let's imagine you're the poor Desilu promotion person or whoever they had contracted by then. Mm -hmm. uh, and soon to be Paramount, because Paramount would buy them about halfway through season two. What do you do with that power? Because obviously they couldn't, you've got the data, right? And we'll, we can, hopefully we can talk about that a little later too, but you've got the data that he's referring to. Now this isn't view, this also point this out. He's not talking about like Nielsen ratings or ratings. He's talking about some measurement of fan mail. Now, how they measure, is there a measurement for measuring fan mail, especially in the paper, paper and stamp days? I, I don't know exactly where this came from, but does that look a little suspect or what do you think? Well, it doesn't seem suspect. I, I, I remember uh, because in 83 and for a good chunk of time, uh, there was no social media, of course, to rely mm -hmm. on or anything. And we had fan mail that would come in for Michael J. Fox at, uh, when we were doing Family Ties for Richard Dean Anderson when he was starring in MacGyver. And you could tell, uh, obviously, when something is touching a nerve with the audience and their popularity is, uh, is uh, gearing up based on volume. And it was as unscientific and yet as scientific as that. Uh, if there were, you know, 100 letters a week for, um, oh, I don't know, let's say Cheers, and there were 800 letters a week for Michael J. Fox, well, okay, Michael Fox is a huge star. And generally, the fan mail uh, base is younger people who take the time to mm -hmm. sit and write and think that their letter is going to get through to somebody, and they do. Uh, but um, so you're talking about a younger demographic, and when they when they come out in force, they come out in force. And and as a uh, a marketer or somebody at the studio, you would just try to leverage that popularity with the network, you know, and say, listen, uh, you know, we we obviously have a huge fan following. We have uh, vocal and and voluminous amount of fans. Uh, let's harness that, and and we want to say to you, NBC or CBS or whatever network is carrying the show that's getting the fan mail, you know, we're popular. Keep us going. Keep us promoted. Keep us uh, supported. And that's what you do from the studio perspective. You'd use that as as leverage to keep your uh, your importance up with that. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking. Obviously, NBC had Star Trek and the Monkeys both. Yep. But when he says it's number one in all the nation, I just wondered if there's somebody like a Nielsen's keeping track, like who's and how do you keep that honest if those are actually you well, know, numbers? Uh, I, I, far be it for me to know exactly what Gene was intending. 
Uh, and of course, I had a fantastic, oh, take a guess, John. I'll take a guess. <laughs> but I, I had a fantastic time uh, working with him for the years that we were able to work together. But he uh, he was a, a producer and a creator of a show. Mm-hmm. And let's say there can be a dose of hyperbole coming out of, of mm-hmm. a producer's mouth and wishful thinking and that sort of thing. So there might have been um, some stretching of the fact that he says it's all the nation. I, I don't know where that came from. Um, if it was just based on, uh, you know, I, I don't know where he came from, but um, you can't, um, you can't dampen his enthusiasm and someone like him uh, in their position where they are just trying to, you know, keep their baby on the air as much as they can call as much attention to it as they can uh, garner as much support for it as they can from the network that airs it. And there might've been a dose of, um, of, of excitement from him, let's say. Let's say, yeah. Well, that's a good question. We just celebrated, not to, not to date our episode today too much, but we just had the 100th anniversary mm-hmm. of, uh, of Gene's birth, mm-hmm. uh, April 19th, uh, 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in COVID, the pandemic kind of dampened some of the big, big, big uh, ways of celebrating, but still there was a lot of online promotion and a lot of online awareness, spreading of Gene's, uh, the, Gene, the Roddenberry vision, and remembering that Gene was the core of this. And, and, Yes, he was a person with, <laughs> who was very human, as we all know, but still this product that he gave the world uh, and lived on in another, in another generation. Uh, what, wh- how were you, what were your thoughts knowing Gene and watching the, uh, the 100th birthday celebrations go by? What, uh, what comes to mind about him? And knowing that he was, uh, you were there when he was having the, 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 the midlife crisis about being dethroned a little bit during the movie era and dealing with Har Bennett and, and then coming back around for the next generation and then his declining years. What, what comes to mind as we think about Gene for you? I think what comes to mind is uh, I, I was so impressed, of course, by his talent and his dedication, but also by his respect for people. I remember feeling very, very respected uh, by Gene. Um, uh, you know, I wasn't a writer or producer or a creative, as it were. I was an, I was an executive of a studio. Um, and yet my area having to do with publicity and, and marketing uh, could be very creative. And we had all kinds of fun things from events to photo sessions and, and uh, the like. And he embraced that and supported uh, our efforts. And uh, I remember a couple of uh, the, those, those buck slips that we would have um, with the Paramount logo at the bottom and the person's mm-hmm. name at the top or vice versa. And I had a number of those from from Gene that would um, have some compliments on them about something that we had done or worked on. And uh, I I was very flattered by um, that kind of respect and attention he gave me because I just had the utmost uh, respect for him. He was unreal. And I was thrilled that I got to work with him during a period where he had this this renaissance and this this um, to me, it was it was an incredible you know, youthful enthusiasm he had when, when Star Trek The Next Generation uh, came about. And um, we were just on a fun journey together. I remember standing on one of the stages and Time Magazine uh, was doing a small story on Star Trek The Next Generation. And Gene was a part of that photo. And uh, he was like a kid in a candy store. You know, um, here it was many years, well, you know, two decades later, that here he is launching Star Trek again. And uh, I think he was just beyond delighted and was just so positive to work with and, and just absolutely lovely. So I had yeah. very fond memories of him and wished that he were still around because uh, uh, his, his view of the world and um, his, his great regard for, for everyone was, uh, was quite admirable. I miss that. 
Well, let me circle back to the memo here, John, just a second from 1967. Now, I know seven-year-old you had no idea, but adult you, after two or three years and things exploded with Best of Both Worlds Summer and all that, you were involved with a hit. And it was easy to print. It was just the sky was the limit. But back in 67, now we'd say they were very much on the bubble in the old school way on network ratings. And here's Gene. Yeah, he's trying to gild the lily a little bit. He's trying to overpromote and maybe hyperbolize a little bit. But what is that like to be the promoter of a show that is not doing well and you're, you're earning your paycheck, but also maybe a show that you really, really believe in and it's still just not breaking through. That's got to be frustrating. I mean, can you empathize with, with them there in the 60s trying to make that happen? I could completely empathize with that. And if I had a dime for every time it happened throughout my career with the various <laughs> shows that you know I believed in, that the producers believed in, um, and they just, despite whatever efforts we'd come up with, whatever guest casting and stunting there'd be, whatever eventizing there'd be, uh, whatever kinds of efforts we could do along with the producers or they would try to do themselves by casting somebody new or whatever they might do to try to get attention or at least get the network to want to renew it, um, it, it just happened all the time. It's, it's extremely frustrating. Um, there are so many factors that go into the decision-making at the networks for why they're renewing a show. Um, and it's not always just the ratings. And I know that's extremely frustrating to the producers because they think, well, right, let's you know, the, the playing field tells us if we do a good show and you get the good ratings, whatever that may mean, but if we get good ratings then we're supposed to be renewed, right? but it doesn't always work that way. Mm. And there's budgetary concerns to think of. There's competition on other networks that might have a show that's similarly themed and the network doesn't want to have a show like somebody else's. Um, there are myriad, myriad situations that come up that prompt the network to decide yes or no on renewing a show. And it's not always just about the ratings. And sometimes, sadly, it comes down to personal personalities and studio politics. And I'm sorry, I'm the new boss, and that was my former guy's show, and I don't care about it. It's not my thing. It wasn't my... Right. I mean, there's all of that enters into it, too. And You absolutely and hit the nail was, on the head, Larry. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. That, that, is, that is quite true. Politics can easily come into it. Um, there are things that may be happening that the producer might not even be aware of on their own show. For instance, there might be a show um, that's doing okay, uh, seemingly should be able to be renewed and has a star uh, that the network has fallen in love with. And the star, the network wants to see that star in his or her own vehicle and take them out of the ensemble. Well, that might be something that's um, not apparent to the producer of a show. And uh, yet there are other things happening behind the scenes that, uh, that might sabotage the current show so that they can free up an actor to do something else. Those sorts of things can happen. So you never know. There's a million yeah. stories. And again, this memo is just is not a press release. It's a little in-house kind of cheerleader memo that Gene is only sending to the staff. Um, and we're talking about the monkeys. And he's you can tell he's trying to boost. Uh, it's it's the it's October 67. So they are nearing the end of um, uh, what are we doing here? Nearing the end of the second season when they're, right. they're heading into the famous Save Star Trek mail campaign. Yep. Becoming in a and they knew they were on that bubble and they knew they were trying to hit the home stretch there and keep spirits up. That's so, right. That's right. Oh, you can't blame John, him for trying. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. uh, so in a, in a way, this looks timeless almost. You'd yes, say. it absolutely does. It's, it, it, that, that still happens to this day. The emotions there. Well, John, this Correct. has been so much fun. Well, and great. not even just because of the monkeys. 
who I haven't thought of until uh, this for quite a while. I did sit on a plane once across from Mickey Dolan's, I remember, not a couple of years ago and was quite thrilled by that. But no, the the monkeys, um, yeah, that that sort of hit its place for me back into the late 60s and not much since. You, You may call yourself a studio executive, John, and you were, but you're very much the heart of the fan and that comes through. And uh, listen, I, we have to talk some more about this. This is a fascinating realm. Could you come back and join us for another episode coming up? Let's do it. I'd love to. Absolutely. I'll stay around. Meanwhile, uh, The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek, that's me, and Portal 47 at larrynemichek.com. And hey, check out all the Trek Files new swag and shirts at the Trekland shop at tpublic.com slash stores slash trekland hyphen shop. <laughs> Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.